I think it's important for us to emphasize the fact that we are a Bible church. And that means that we study the Word of God. That means that we want to know what God's Word has to say, regardless of a theological construct that somebody wants to bring up. And one of the ways that we can encourage you to do that is with these right here. Now, if you came in and you got a handout, you can open this up. You can find it in there. But there also may be more than one of you who would like to have one. If that's the case, you can raise your hand. And Zach will make sure and get one of these papers to you. And what it is, is it's Romans 7, printed out for you, with double spaces in between so that you can mark what you need to mark. This is one of the most effective ways I've ever found to study the Word of God. And since we are dealing with the problem of the flesh and indwelling sin and sin's relationship to the law and what that looks like, how Paul works out his salvation for us to see, well, this is the reason why I'm wearing the skeleton on my body right now. Is because regardless if you recognize this or not, this could be you. You may be holding on to that now. And I think, for it's, impor- I think it's important for us to walk slowly through this passage to recognize the burden that we needlessly take up when Christ has set us completely free. As you know, I've, I've read a lot of Watchman Nee lately. I love Watchman Nee. I think he's got some insights on the Word of God that the church is sorely missing, and everybody's scared to death of him because he actually believes the Holy Spirit's real. But he makes an interesting statement. He says, the answer to everything that you have going on in your life is Jesus. That's it. It's always a form of a person. And so I want us to have that in our minds. Think about the idea of the flesh holding on in these situations. Hopefully I won't break this because it is on loan from a doctor. Is Vern here? Do we have a budget for that, Vern? He's outside. I'll go ahead and say yeah. All right, so if you would, look with me at Romans 7. We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter. The whole idea here, he just got done in chapter 6, talking to us about the greatness of knowing that we're dead to sin and reckoning ourselves not just dead to sin, but alive in Christ. We have been brought from death to life. That's a reality. Now the question is, how do we take advantage of that reality? And guess what? It's totally okay to take advantage of that reality. We're not obligated in any way to pay God back. If we pay God back for the goodness that he supplied to us, it ceases to be grace. Grace is only grace if it's a free gift, because that's what grace means. Grace is a free gift. They're absolutely synonymous. And so the question is, with this free gift, how do we unpack it and take advantage of everything that it offers? so that we would no longer suffer and struggle and feel slightly winded and weighed down and a little bit sweaty. I've had this thing on for 15 minutes. I was like, good grief, when's Chuck going to finish? And then I sympathize with you guys about how long I preach. What's that? What'd you say? Somebody said something, what? It's a revival? I feel about dead in the water right now, okay? I'm surviving. Anyway, let's move forward. Verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren? And notice they're talking to believers, and then he qualifies. For I'm speaking to those who know the law. So those who were previously Jews, who have now become believers in Christ, they've got baggage. And the baggage is an otherwise initially instituted system of intimacy that God had in giving the law with which if the Jewish people would obey the law, they would commune with God in such a way to where their lives would become living testimonies of the goodness and the grace of God. And they would actually be a beacon, a lighthouse that draws the nations to themselves. Okay. 
The problem is, is that as time went on and as smart people took a hold of it, they decided to make the law instead of a means of blossoming intimacy with God, they made it a means of acceptance with God and they turned it into what we would understand today as legalism. These are requirements for your acceptance. And you are shunned and unacceptable if you are not willing to live up to these things. And this is why we had the blossoming of a group called the Pharisees. Well, imagine somebody coming out of that. Or if you've come out of a Roman Catholic background, or if you've come out of Latter-day Saints, or if you've come out of, uh, who else we got? The J-Dubs. Those are fun people. If, you, if you've come out of any of those situations where you've got previous religious baggage, it was always about the expectations that were placed upon you for your acceptance before God. And unless you met those expectations, whether it's before you believed in Christ or believed in whatever they put forward or afterwards, there is no way that you would be found to be acceptable. And that's what constitutes this. It is constantly our guilt and burden that we have to be doing something for God. And I'm here to tell you today, that is not from God. Now, I know that might sound very counterintuitive. And let me tell you where that comes from. It comes from the flesh. We always want to be doing something. Let me give you a grand example of what this looks like. I know I've only gotten halfway into the first verse of something we've already covered twice. But think about this. Somebody gets a ministry together, okay? We want to do something for God. How do people usually go about determining what needs to be done for God? Isn't it usually where we sit around, okay, what do we need to do? Well, you know, we really should do this. Oh, we should do this. Well, I got a friend who's got this going on. We should really help out there. And what you find out is it's whoever has the best idea that gets the consensus. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. That's what we end up doing for God. Let me ask a question. What did God want you doing for him? Because a lot of times we bypass God and we think about, well, what would be a good thing for us to do? Notice it's about we and us. That's just one evidence of how in our lives we still seek to be law-keeping because we can't get ourselves out of the mix. It's always about what we want and what we expect and what we're going to accomplish. And Paul is trying to let us know, and this is why Romans is so detailed and it's so long. You are weak because you cannot save yourself. And you need the blood of Jesus to forgive you of sin and to give you eternal life as a free gift. But not only that, you're even more weaker than what you think you are. Because now when you try to live for him, guess what? You can't. Even though you're redeemed, you cannot live for God. You cannot. Let me ask you this question. Who's the person that can please God? Does anybody know? Hmm? Jesus. So what that means is that if I'm going to do anything pleasing to God, who's got to be doing the doing? Jesus. Exact same answer. Jesus has got to be living his life through me if I'm going to be pleasing in any way to God. You know what that means? It means all those series of meetings that we had about what we should do for God and how we're going to further the kingdom, which I hate that phrase. That's completely devoid of any sound, consistent theology. But this whole idea of how we're going to go out and we're going to serve God, this get up and get her going kind of thing has done more to cripple the ministry of the church than enhance it. Chuck read a really interesting passage while I was back there suffering in the heat. Because it's interesting, if you look later on down through there and you read Acts 1, Jesus' command to them is, go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for what? What ended, up, what, what ended up coming? The Holy Spirit. And notice that they weren't to move and go do anything until the Holy Spirit came and moved them. Did you recognize that whenever Peter got up, he's like, mm, what do you guys think I should preach to these people? 
He doesn't say that. Why? Holy Spirit's leading him. There's no question about what needs to be done. But he couldn't do anything until the Holy Spirit was moving him to do it. Well, you come into this situation of this new life in Christ, and you've got all this laundry list, grocery list, expectation baggage of what it is to be religious and acceptable, and it's usually acceptable to other people, not so much acceptable to God. What you find out is you've got to have a paradigm shift because that's what Jesus is in the business of doing, okay? So when he says, those of you that are familiar with the law, we're talking about people with immense Jewish baggage. And I would say how we apply that to our day and age is if you've come to the text of scripture with religious baggage, that you think something is expected of you in order for Jesus to love you, accept you, care for you, what have you, this is for you too. So notice what he says. He says here, do you not know that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? He gives you the example for the married woman's bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. That is the purpose of this chapter is that the believer in Christ needs to understand you have been freed from the law. Not just in the idea of needing to live up to it to be accepted. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about performance-based Christianity is completely unbiblical. Paul has no stomach or tolerance for it whatsoever. And he's letting you know, if you think that God expects something of you, guess what? He doesn't. Now, some of you are married. And let's be honest, it's a lot easier to serve your spouse with love bubbling over in your heart and making kissy faces at one another. Hey, I'm a big fan. Than it is to be gritting your teeth and give kind of that kind of going on right there, right? Now, surely none of you have ever served your spouse in that way. But there's a difference, isn't there? One is motivated because of great love that you share in that relationship and you it's blossoming, it's boiling over. You're like, yeah, this is what it's supposed to be like. The other one is, guess this is what I gotta do. You realize a lot of times we live our Christian lives like that? Instead of thriving, we find, our, we find we're just surviving. Surviving is not the Christ life. It's not. That's not abundant life. So now, being set free, being released from the law. Notice why she released, why she set free when death takes place. So that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. And what we saw was, is praise God, we're all joined to another man. We're not joined to the law, we're joined to Christ. Now, what needed to happen? What husband died? If you remember, none of the husbands died. We died. And we died with Christ. Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, before we knew the Lord, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body, and it bore fruit to what? Death. Everybody look. Here it is. The former life. This is what it looked like. This is why whenever Isaiah said, all my works are filthy rags before you when I'm in your presence, Lord. It's all death. It's all dung. It's all junk. Can you imagine living your life with the best intentions to serve the Lord? And when you stand before him, it all burns up and the wind blows it away because it was worth nothing. You know why? Because it's oftentimes what I need to be doing for the Lord and how I need to be serving and whether or not I am performing well. And it's all kinds of I. I has nothing in the Christ life. Nothing. So now we move forward, verse six. But now we've been released from the law. Now that's what we just saw up there, right? She's free from the law. We died, we're released. No expectation is laid upon you. Well, isn't that making it too easy for people? Obviously not, because we struggle with it so much. 
But is salvation full and free? Yes, it is. And regardless, if we're talking about your justification, your sanctification, or your glorification, it's all the work of Jesus. It's all free all the way across. The greatest problems we have is when we want to step in and get it done for Jesus. Get her done, right? Anybody in here get her done, Christians? Don't lie. I am. And this is why the Lord has to take me to the woodshed. It says, why are you doing what only I can do? And I have to say, Lord, I'm so dumb. And that's exactly where he wants me. He wants me recognizing the futility and the frailness that I bring to the table. Just rest in him and let him do the work. So he says here, but now we've been released from the law. Verse 6, having died to that which we were bound so that we serve in the newness of the spirit. That's what's going on now. We serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We do not serve according to an expectation of checklists. We serve because the spirit is alive. Now here's what kills me about this. This is the last time that the Holy Spirit's brought up until chapter 8. Because Paul's going to take us on a journey and he's going to show us something that's very, very personal. What shall we say then? Verse 7. Is the law sin? Can I blame the law? If the law causes me to sin, when it tells me that I should not lie, I should not covet, I should not murder, and I find that when somebody rubs me the wrong way, cuts me off, says something nasty, posts something on Facebook that I don't agree with, all of a sudden I've got all of these things inside of my heart that want to jump out there and start smacking fools. Don't act like you don't. Be honest with yourself. Let me let you know on a secret. Nobody here is expecting perfection out of you. In fact, if you're expecting perfection, and if you're trying to keep up appearances of perfection, then that's keeping you from intimacy with one another. But I guarantee you this, it's keeping you from understanding the full orbed and scope of the grace of God in your life. God is not in the business of perfect people. He is here to minister to the sick. And I constantly need to come to God. I'm not just sick. I'm lame, dumb, blind, ignorant, foolish, foolhardy. That's a good word. I need help. And what I love about that, where I am weak, that's where his power is perfected. It's perfected in my weakness. So notice, God's not interested in working with perfect people. He's interested in working with broken people and manifesting himself in such a way to where it's undeniable that the only response we could ever have in this situation is to give him glory, glory, glory. That's it. So now, can you blame the law? Notice what he says. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. The law is good because it tells me where I'm bad. That's not fun. But it also, and in fact, let me give you a good example of how this works. Everybody noticed that a few years ago when you go through the drive through at McDonald's now, they put in the calorie count of what you're getting. And that really dictates what you decide. Oh, I can't wait for a Big Mac. Oh, they put like nine patties on my burger. And then you recognize that you're getting ready to eat six million calories. And you go, mm, I'm going to take the salad because the dressing's only 400 calories, right? We find all of a sudden because we're made aware of the danger that we're stepping into, it's causing a lot of correction and conviction and immense guilt that comes on it. Even if you don't order that burger, you notice you feel still feel guilty because you wanted it. You're eating that salad. Trying to choke it down, right? Well, if I'm going to have a salad, I'm not getting a Diet Coke. I mean, that's what we do, right? I'm getting a regular Coke. We, we, we balance. We reason with ourselves, don't we? We do. Why? Because, man, we're just trying to make it work. Let's be honest. And guess what? We don't work. We don't. We're just trying to fool ourselves into feeling better. How crazy is that? And if it takes Coke over Diet Coke to substitute focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ to do it, a lot of times that's where our flesh wants to go. Because then it's still all about us. What dangerous ground we lay for ourselves. So, could you blame the law? Nope. Law tells me what sin is. I wouldn't have known about lusting. I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, now stop, singular, yes. It's the sin principle. The indwelling sin. See, 
Jesus' blood on the cross took care of our sins, our multiple offenses against God. But it did not take care of the indwelling sin nature. The cross takes care of the indwelling sin nature. And why is that? Because we are called to crucify ourselves. We're already crucified with Christ, but to recognize that the flesh is going to come to nothing, that we should put no confidence in the flesh, that no good thing comes out of the flesh. And if we would just see our flesh as Jesus sees our flesh and say, you know what? That sinful way to go, not worth it. Need to get rid of it. It's dead. And I have a new life to live in all because of what Jesus has done. Now we have a heart filled with humility and we're operating in grace. And that's the sphere we need to be in because that's the sphere where God put us in Christ. Everybody with me? Okay, I don't want to start beating the pulpit here. I have no reason to now, but if I have to wake you up, I will. I'll come, I'll make you carry the skeleton. Just kidding. So now verse eight. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment. Now notice that. When I was told you shouldn't lust, sin said, ah, there's an open door. And reach through that commandment, and look what happens. Produced in me coveting, lusting of every kind. I was overwhelmed by everything I lusted for when I was told not to do it. Anybody ever told you not to do something? And all of a sudden you found you had this desire, you wanted to do it more than ever. You wanted to rub it in their face and then beat them with it. Yeah. Because it's revealing more of ourselves. See, here's the interesting thing about the law. Why would the Christian need to have anything to do with the law whatsoever? Because the law is exposing weakness. It's exposing areas of weakness. You know what's interesting since we've had Zechariah, I carry him, I'm like, whoa, I didn't know I had that bone. I didn't know I had that muscle there. All of a sudden you find things hurt you to know we're there. They were all tucked back in there somewhere, weren't working. But now you're holding, you're doing this, you're burping, you know, whatever. And next thing you know, you got stuff you didn't even know. It's bringing it out operating in a different way starts bringing those hidden things out this is what the law does it's searching every nook and cranny of our being and saying it's not going to work it's not going to work it's not going to work stop working for god stop it you cannot please him it's impossible so stop trying he says here Sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting, lusting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. All we got to do is get rid of the law and we won't have a problem anymore. Is that how it works? No. So he says here, verse nine. And, and by the way, my clock's all messed up. That clock's all messed up. We're just, whatever. So I was once alive apart from the law. Now, this is the main part that causes great controversy. Last week, we went through a chart to talk about how Paul uses this, and we found only one instance where he uses the idea of being alive in Colossians 2.20 to talk about unregenerate people, lost people, in their state apart from Christ. And what were they alive to? They were alive to sin and death. That's the idea. So everything else that Paul ever uses to speak about the idea of alive is always talking about how God has made us alive with Christ, something like Ephesians 2.5. So when you believed in Jesus, when you heard the gospel, you responded in faith. At that moment, you were quickened. You were made alive in Christ. The indwelling Holy Spirit comes into your life and now resides there as a deposit of the guarantee to come. So notice what Paul is saying. I once was alive. Look what he says, apart from the law. When he came to the understanding that his sins were forgiven, he had this newfound joy and this newfound appreciation. But it naturally leads to the idea of now that I'm redeemed, I need to get busy for the Lord. Has anybody ever told you get busy for the Lord? Better get busy for the Lord. He's coming soon. You better get in there and do something. When's the last time you heard somebody say, you know what? You better wait on the Holy Spirit so you do what's right for the Lord. You do the correct thing for the Lord. You do what God would want you to do. Do you guys realize that the judgment seat of Christ, there are two types of elements that Paul uses to describe that. One, one group is wood, hay, and stubble. The other group is gold, silver, precious stone. This is 1 Corinthians 3, if you want to read it at some point. And only those elements that will stand up to the testing of fire will endure to the other side. The others burn up. I guarantee you that these flammable elements over here are coated in good intentions and well-meaning hearts and some of the kindest people you've ever known in your life. 
and their good works will burn. All because we didn't stop to consult what God wanted us to do. I just want to get busy for the Lord. Dangerous stuff. Dangerous. So I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became what? Come on, guys, stick with me. I just want to sit up here and yell and sweat and you guys not be with me. You, if you're not sweaty when you leave, you didn't you study. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Now, remember what's interesting about this word alive, because the word alive is used twice in this verse. And right here, it's the word anazao. And it's the idea to live again, to rise up again, sometimes used in relation to the concept of resurrection. In other words, it was laying dormant for a while. But when somebody brought the law, a commandment in, while I was a Christian, and remember, we're talking about Jewish people. You don't think this was a problem back then? Read Acts chapter 15. Well, yeah, believing in Jesus is good, but you need to keep the law. Oh, what? Well, yeah, believing in Jesus is good, but you need to keep the law and you need to get circumcised. And all God's people said, what? No. If that's what it takes to serve the Lord, I'm out. That's got to happen. What? Yeah, got to do it. Got to do it. If you want to be accepted, if you want to be accepted. Everybody see how that robs grace of its beauty? Completely takes it out of the picture and becomes about how well you do and not what Jesus has done. Well, notice this. When the commandment came, sin, singular, became alive and I died. The re- let's say it this way. The result of me trying to serve the Lord in my flesh. Those are the types of problems you have with the flesh. The result of what came out of that was death. It was bones. When I said, oh my gosh, what did Paul say? You shall not covet. You shall not lie. Honor your father and your mother. Do not blaspheme the Lord's name. Well, that's what I need to be doing. There's a lot of Christians that believe that we're called to keep the law today. Well, that's what I need to be doing. Guess what? You will find frustration and failure meet you at every turn. The end of those things is death. It does not work. God is not pleased. Am I hammering this home enough for you guys to understand? Okay, good. Let's move on. Verse 10. And this commandment, notice it's brought up again, which was the result in life. If you could perfectly keep it, you wouldn't need a savior. You just go on to heaven all by yourself because you don't need Jesus. You can save yourself. It was supposed to result in life. Proved to result in what? Death. Do you realize that you don't understand? I don't understand the extent of the sin nature inside of me until I seek to resist it. That chocolate cake's no big deal as long as you're focused on getting it. Everybody tell I got an eating problem. Halloween was hard, y'all. My God, there's chocolate now. It's hard. I got two Reese's cups sitting in the refrigerator waiting for me right now. I'm going to deny my flesh as much as possible, but you know what? Flesh is going to win. Waistline's going to grow. Wife can rebuke me all day long. Hope she does, but we love Reese's. What can I say? It's our downfall. You guys don't need to know all that. Anyway, moving on. And this commandment, which was the result in life, proved a result in death for me. For, here's the reason why, sin, everybody pay attention, the sin principle, singular. Taking the opportunity through the commandment. Everybody remember we saw through the commandment, how lust got in there and created exceeding lust. Sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, made you think that you could uphold it, made you think that this was the correct way to serve the Lord, and through it, did what? Killed you. Did the law kill you? No. Sin killed you. The thing that kills us is the thing that is ingrained in us that we cannot get away from. It's the thing that will ultimately kill us physically in the end. Praise God that we have a spiritual salvation. Sin, grabbing us by the neck and dragging us to death. That's what it does. Verse 12, so then, the law is holy. Why? Because it tells you the things of God. And the commandment is holy. Why? Because it's the things of God. And it's righteous. Why? Because the law is telling you the things of God. And it's good. 
Why? Because it's telling you what? The things of God. See, only Scott was listening. Don't blame the law. Don't act like a victim like it's the law's fault that we sin. Don't try to pass it off on someone else that we're not the problem. Everybody noticed that Paul is seeking to remove the barriers, the defense mechanisms that we put up that are, it's not my fault, it's not my problem, I'm not the one, don't blame me, you should look over there, right? It's this woman you gave me. Remember that classic line? What were you doing here, Eve? Why the serpent came along and started talking and stuff? It's weird, right? It got me all messed up. How different would it have been if Adam said, I've sinned against you. I was wrong. Father, I'm so sorry. Still would have had sin in the world, but good grief. Why can't we look at his failed example and learn from that? To come to the Lord humbly. And guess what? You can always come. Jesus has made it possible. Grace makes it acceptable. You can always come to him and say, Lord, I messed it up. This is the first John 1, 9. Our problem, the reason why we don't come to him often is because we have a pride issue of not wanting to. Well, I'll just do better next time. Well, I'll make sure not make that mistake again. Somebody give me a rubber band so I can pop myself on the wrist every time I say that word. Everybody see the law keeping? Whatever way we can keep Jesus out of the sanctification process, we will die to try to do it. And we can't. So he takes the law out from there. Now the law actually dismantles you. And sin uses that opportunity to expose more and more and more of how wrong you are, and it slays you. So he says here, verse 13, therefore, thank you, Scott, Scott, man, I need a sticker to give you. I don't know. You're on ball today. Therefore, did that which is good. Now, listen, this is where you want your pen out, because this is where we're picking up. Notice all that was introduction till now. That which is good. What did he just talking about was good? What is it? Hey, man, if you didn't come to talk to me today, think again. We need to get some coffee down the aisles of everybody. What is good? The law. Context tells us the law. So what you want to do is you want to put little brackets there, and you want to write in the idea, therefore, did that which is good, meaning the law, become the cause of death for me? Was that the, how, was that the reason for death? Was it the law? What was it? Sin, notice this, may it never be, that's the double negative, perish the thought, banish the thought, don't blame the holy, righteous, and good law of God, it's not the law's fault, it's your fault, it's my fault, the thing that's going to kill me is me. Now remember, he's talking to saved people, Christians, so he says here, rather it was what? Sin, market, singular, indwelling sin. Sin is to blame. It's the sin nature. It's the sin principle. It's indwelling sin. In order that it might be shown to be what? Sin. You realize that? Doesn't that sound like the most craziest redundancy? Paul wants you to know that sin is sin. And Paul doesn't just want you to know that sin is sin, but that you have sin, that you are sin, that you're full of sin, that you're completely fabricated of sin. It infects every bit of your body. Sin. If sin were the same equivalent as COVID-19 is, we would all have on plutonium suits coming to church. That's just how infectious and embedded it is. It is a cancer that kills. And so the question is, well, how do we deal with it then? Notice we're not talking about sins. Those are covered by the blood. I've got a deeper problem, an indwelling problem that I've got to take care of, that I've got to handle, that I'm starting to recognize more and more how incredibly evil and sick I am. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death, by showing over and over the futility of my actions and how it all falls apart. Look what it says, through that which is good. What is that which is good? The law, write it in above there, the law. So that, here's your reason. Through the commandment, remember we've seen that twice already? Through the commandment, look what it says. Sin 
would become utterly sinful. In other words, the commandment shows indwelling sin to be such that it is absolutely overwhelming and incapacitating. The law, why, why, is, why does a Christian have a relationship to the law? Why should the Christian use the law, as 1 Timothy 1 says, in order to show or expose sinful behaviors and habits amongst the church? Because until people recognize how exceedingly and desperately sinful they are, they will not be ready for the Lord to be doing the different work in their lives. They won't be ready to live differently. We've got to be convinced beyond argument beyond, well, what about, well, how about, well, I, you don't know, all excuses laid low, put down, to make us recognize, I don't just have a deep need to go to heaven when I die, I have a deep need to live a life that praises God. Both of those, one and the same. So he says here, verse 14, and this is our fun part, right? Because all of a sudden we figure out that Paul's bipolar. Isn't this it? How many of you have read this and you go, he's me. Like, how do you get a hold of my biography? Right? That's what we do. So here's what we're going to do because we have limited time. We got 10 minutes to nail through this and then next week we'll pick it up and we'll unpack it more. I want to give you, because of your papers, things to mark so that you'll notice. And if you will just read over that two or three times in the next week on Sunday, you will find that your mind is actually really prepared to engage these things, to watch what Paul's going to do, okay? So follow with me. Verse 14, four, there's your causal conjunction. We know that the law is what? Spiritual. Pay attention to that. Notice before, when you were dealing in verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment's holy, righteous, and good. Everybody see that? But notice here, he unveils something very interesting. So watch this. The law is spiritual. Everybody remember we talked about there are three kinds of people. You have the solical man who's the person who does not know Christ, does not have the indwelling Holy Spirit, lost is what they are. And so all they can do is live according to their mind and their will and their emotions. And all they care about is pleasing themselves. That's it. And then you have the spiritual man, which the spiritual man is somebody who is walking in accordance with the Spirit, who is totally in tune with the mind of Christ because we've been given the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And so what we find is, is that when we come upon life situations as spiritual people, we yield to what God would want. We put up our hands and go, not what I want, Lord, but what you want. What does it say in your word? What should I do here? And we wait upon the Lord and we obey the word of God. And by doing so, the Lord begins to work through our lives. So now we're walking with him in a daily, moment-by-moment -moment relationship. But the problem in 1 Corinthians was the carnal Christian. I couldn't talk to you like spiritual Christians. I had to talk to you like babies in Christ because you're carnal, because you have strife and jealousy amongst you, because you're dividing up the church into groups and segments. You've got cliques going on, and that's evil, and you're acting like mere carnal people. What did we learn from that? It is possible for a redeemed Christian to act like a lost person still having the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, those three designations are important because right here, he wants to let you know something. The law is spiritual. The law is on spiritual grounds. And the person who is in tune with the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, a spiritual person who is exercising all of the liberties that they have in Christ, that is somebody who is actually in compliance with the law. Now, we'll get into that in Romans 8 because it talks about how that works. But what we need to know is the law is spiritual. Now, our spirit is what is in tune with God. And if you're lost, your spirit's just kind of nothing, right? But if you believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in your spirit and has cleaned house of your spirit and has fully redeemed your spirit so that it's holy unto the Lord. Now you have a connection with God. When you wonder why your conscience all of a sudden pricks your heart and mind about whether or not you should do something, that's because the spirit inside of you is telling you something because it's redeemed. Your conscience will always be in agreement with the Spirit of God and the law of God and the Word of God every time. It's a beautiful gift that God has given to us. Our problem is that we go, shut up, let me do what I want to do. That's what we do to it. And then we end up being carnal Christians and wonder why we're struggling. So notice the law is spiritual. Now here's what Paul says. 
But I am of what? Flesh. You know what another interesting word for that is? Carnal. In fact, he uses the exact same word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 3 for carnal. It's, uh, what is it, sarkinos, I think it is. Notice he says the flesh. Notice he doesn't say I'm solical or I'm natural. He doesn't say I'm lost, but I'm lost in bondage to sin. He says I'm carnal. The problem is, is that when I find I'm trying to keep the law and it's telling me not to lust and I'm lusting after everything, all of a sudden what I find out is that this old man is completely out of control in my life, wanting what it wants, not caring who it hurts to get it, because I will be satisfied, dang it. That's what it gets at. So notice, I find that when I try to keep the law, that the law is spiritual, and I can't find anything wrong with it. It's as holy as the day is long. So Paul does what? I got to look somewhere. The problem is me. The problem is, is I'm trying to serve the Lord in the flesh. I'm carnal. And notice what he says, sold into bondage to sin. Now, I wanted you to understand this. This is another evidence that we know that Paul is talking about believers in Christ in this situation. Because somebody who's lost usually doesn't care that they're lost. They love doing lost things, hanging out with other lost people. That's, that's what they surround their life with. And so there's not a conviction that's going on there about anything because they don't give a rip what God says about anything. This is somebody who is recognizing a failure to live up to what they perceive to be an expectation and finding that the problem doesn't reside anywhere else but in themselves. My problem is I'm trying to operate in a carnal manner. Verse 15. Now watch this. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Now, this is where we're going to wrap it up by reading through this, and I want to give you two words, okay? Desire and action. Desire and action. And when we read through this, I want you to take your pen, and I want you to write it in as you see it happen. Now, watch verse 15. For what I am doing, is that an action? Notice that. If you want to just write ACT, something like that. If you want to do it quickly. For what I'm doing, the actions that are taking place in my life, I do not understand, for I am not practicing. Is that an action? Yes, an action. What I would like to do, there's the desire. You know what's interesting about that? That's the will. Does everybody see that? Notice that he's talking about that he wills to do good things, but his flesh can't carry it out. You know what that tells me? This is a redeemed, regenerate person. Because when you believe in the Lord, you now have the opportunity to bring your will under the law of Christ, the idea of Christ reigning and ruling in your life. Notice that his will in the soul wants to do good. His problem is that the flesh won't carry it out. Now, I'm sure that you've never wanted to do something great for the Lord in some way and all of a sudden found out that you were completely incapacitated to make it happen. That never happened to you, did it? it happens to me every day. Why? Because I can't learn Romans 7. That's my problem. Notice it says here, what I would like to do, the desire, but I am doing, there's your action, the very thing that I hate. Do you recognize that's a desire too? You ever sinned and hated the fact that you committed that sin? And what do you do? Why do I keep going back to that? Why do I keep handling it that way? Do you realize that this is the reason why a lot of rehab programs don't work? You recognize that? There's a lot of 12 steps, but there's no reliance on the spirit. It's about you getting your act together. In fact, AA won't even mention God. We have to talk about a higher power. How's anybody going to get rescue from themselves when they're always with themselves and denying the name of God in their lives? It doesn't happen. And this is why the church needs to recognize the dangers of carnal living and how we operate with one another on a performance scale because it robs the community of Christ of grace. If we're not operating in grace here, guess what? Nobody should stay. Everybody should go. Everybody should leave. Because you find out that we're just a group of people in a special little situation, a building like this, that are operating the same way that everybody else outside this building is operating. That's not godly. It's devoid of the Spirit. Notice he says here, verse 16, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, 
Notice if I do, there's your action. The very thing I do not want to do, there's the desire. What does he say here? I what? I agree with the law. Why? Because the law is showing him where he's wrong. So I can't, I can't call out the law for doing wrong. If anything, I'm in agreement with it. Now, has everybody noticed that only a regenerate person could say that? How many lost people are you like, you know what, man, I'm just trying to agree with the law of God. That's all I'm trying to do. I've never heard a lost person say that. If they did, they're high. That's just not sober thinking. So notice, I do not do what I want to do. I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Verse 17, here's where we'll close. So now, watch this, because I want you to ponder this throughout the week. No longer am I the one doing it. There's your action, the action. But sin, which dwells in me. But sin, which dwells in me. Andrew Murray wrote this. This is the language of a regenerate man. A man who knows that his heart and nature have been renewed and that sin is now a power in him that is not himself. Now here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to end on a doggy downer note, okay? I'd much rather end in a puppy upper note. But here's what I want you to get. When you find yourself dealing with sin in your life and you say, why can't I conquer that? Why can't I get past that? Why does it keep hanging on and popping up and taking control? And no matter how hard I try to resist, it wins. One of the first steps to deliverance from those types of situations is recognizing one thing. That is not you doing it. Now, I know that sounds like I've totally given you an escape hatch out. And we're going to see how that works out next week. But what you actually find out is if you're doing those sinful things in your life and you don't want to do it, guess what? That's your flesh. That's not who God said you were. In fact, one of the most painful realizations in the Christian life is when I've sinned in some way against somebody that I love deeply. And I take a step back and I recognize that has nothing to do with what God has prepared in advance for me to live. I'm actually living in a way that is completely foreign to the love and the grace of God. And what that does is hopefully, hopefully, it creates a humility to say, God, you are so much more gracious than my sin. Here it is right in front of my eyes. And I'm so disgusted with myself. And what I have to recognize is that is sin that dwells in me. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I hoped would happen. That's not how I wanted to handle this situation. I don't know about you, but the next word that comes to mind in my relationship with God when I think about myself in those situations is the word help. And what we're going to find out is that's where God wants us. God wants us in a place of complete, absolute weakness. Why? So that we will stop trying, so that we will stop doing, so that we'll stop making resolutions, so that we'll stop offering up good ideas. And instead, we will just be tilled Fertile ground for him to say, God, whatever you want, whatever you want. I don't know about you. Listen to me, because this is my heart here. I don't know about you, but I need him. I need him. I'm going to tell you guys a secret you might not know. Parenting is hard. I need him. Seeking to be a good husband is hard. I need him. Carrying this designation of pastor is hard. I need him. Trying to be a good friend to all the people I care about in my life, I need him. Because I'm recognizing in every avenue that's placed in front of me, 
God, how am I going to do this? How am I going to make this happen? And that's when God lets me know, now you're starting to get it. Now you're starting to recognize that you can't and I can. That's where he wants us. Let's pray. God, I pray today that we would thank you for the law. As strange as that sounds, but it is holy, it is righteous, it is good, it is spiritual. And often we find ourselves in the flesh, carnal, full of jealousy, full of strife, causing division, saying the wrong things, entertaining the wrong ideas, running briskly in a direction that you did not call us to. How much wasted time and pain would be saved in our lives if we would just come to the end of ourselves. And I thank you, God, that the law desires to do that in our lives, to make us realize we don't just need the blood. We need the cross. We need Christ. We need help. Father, I pray that our hearts would be convicted to not be worried about being busy for you, not being worried about serving for you and pressing on and keeping our nose to the grindstone and getting as many hours in before noon that we possibly can, killing ourselves in the process. But Father, we would do something incredibly counterintuitive and that you would remind us by the indwelling Holy Spirit to wait and let the Spirit open the way in which we should go. Only in that way can we serve you in full confidence. Thank you, God, that grace makes it happen. Thank you, God, for Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name we pray it. Amen.